I feel like what happened in Texas is actually the perfect example of every talking point that the right has ever given being wrong. Good guy with a gun will stop oh, yeah. a bad guy with a gun. You literally had an arsenal of good guys with a gun, trained men with a gun who did zip. Yeah. We should close all doors and lock like we're going to make these students in, living in prisons to go to school. No, that's not freedom. That's not what you're talking about. You know, every talking point that they've ever had in this one mass shooting sort of blew up yeah. and people are not moving past it. They're just not willing to let it go. And I think that's essential. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. So I do this podcast in many ways in response to today's broken world. I started this project as a way to put my feelings somewhere, to not just complain, but to explain, to engage, to remind people why democracy is important, that the American experiment is just that, an experiment, and experiments can fail. I wanted people to understand that we need to put in the work if we want to keep living in the kind of country we keep telling the world we are. I wanted my rants to make you feel heard and seen and give you insight and inspire you, but I wanted this podcast to go deeper. I wanted people to feel if they listened to me once a week, they could come away feeling like they had a better understanding of what was going on, that I'd given you just enough context to care about whatever issue we were talking about because change only happens when people care. That's why when I'm choosing my guests, I don't just choose people who are famous or that everybody knows, but I try and choose brilliant people I think everyone deserves to know. So that being said, today's pod is a candid conversation with Thomas Zimmer. Thomas Zimmer is a historian, author, and visiting professor at Georgetown's University School of Foreign Service, where he teaches 20th century U.S. and international history with a focus on the transatlantic history of democracy and its discontents. He is currently writing two books, A History of Polarization Since the 1960s, and a book entitled White America's Fear of Liberal Democracy. He also writes a regular column for The Guardian about the past, present, and possible futures of American democracy. And I think you're going to love his insight and be as big a fan of him as I am after hearing his thoughts. So without further ado, please welcome my guest today, author, historian, and Georgetown professor, Thomas Zimmer. Welcome, Thomas. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm very excited. I'm really excited that you're joining me today because I've been following your work for a couple of years now, and I have to thank you so much for your incredible insight and take on America. Now, you are a visiting professor at Georgetown, but prior to that, you were a professor in Germany. Are you a German citizen? I am. Yes. Yes. I mean, as as I'm sure um, everyone will hear, I'm. That's the reason for my for my for the for the funny way I talk. Oh, I like the way you talk. I ask because I was born and raised in Canada. And although I'm an American citizen now, I've noticed that sometimes it takes an outsider to see things clearly. And because I'm an immigrant, you're not from here, sometimes we have that distance to see America for what it really is and not what it was taught or what we were brought up absorbing. Um, and I don't think that means we love it any less. Sometimes I think I feel like I love it more because I chose it. I chose to be here. Um, but I do think it is... Um, it gives us the insight to imagine a world where we don't live in America, where there is another way of doing things, another possibility. And choosing to be here, we sort of ask America to live up to its potential because we know that it has it in it and it's sort of lost its way. Do you notice that as a quote unquote outsider? So I think there's definitely something to that. Um, I think maybe if you are coming from a non-American perspective, 
you might be slightly less inclined to buy into certain American exceptionalism, certain myths about America's past and present that maybe are so ingrained in sort of the American political discourse that you're not even questioning them. And then when, you, when you're when coming from the outside, you're like, no, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense to me. That is certainly part of it. I think one thing I found that has probably helped me is that when I started talking about American politics, um, I knew no one. No one knew me. I literally started with, I think, 73 followers on Twitter. <laughs> that was about three years ago. Um, and so I was never, I never felt constrained in, in what I was going to say by, you know, what are people going to think um, about what I'm saying? What, where does that put me in the discourse, right? Like, oh, I know, I know these people. I know these journalists. What are they going to think when I say this? I never had to you know, think about that because literally no one knew who I was. So I, I never felt constrained by any of these. I just said what I thought I had to contribute or what my observations. And I think that maybe gave me a little more freedom in a sense um, to say what I thought needed to be said. Um, because I, I do feel that now that I've, you know, come to know more people and talk to people and, and know that people will, you know, hear what I have to say, which is great. I, I love that. But it also means that you start thinking about, oh, if I say this, oh, I know a few people who might not like this, right? And you start thinking about, do you still want to say it? Do you maybe want to be a little more careful there? And, and I think in general, it's great to just have that freedom to just really say what you want to say and not worry about who is going to think what about what you're saying. Yeah, you have to remind yourself to go back to that place where nobody knew who you were and just be authentic to the work and to the observations you have of a society. Now, you're a professor of, as I understand it, U.S. and international history who focuses on democracy. And you're writing two books, one about the history of polarization since the 1960s and one that you call... Uh, you know, white America's fear of a true liberal democracy. Reading your work, it's clear that you question the assumption that America has always been this stable democracy and that this current situation is actually so bizarre. This idea that Republicans have kind of just lost their minds and abandoned democracy for power is not that surprising to you because the way you look at it, democracy has always been less important to them than power. As long as democracy was working for them, they could support it. But now that it's not they're willing to throw it out. So their behavior isn't really as baffling as people think, and it kind of makes sense to you. Could you expand on that a little? Yeah, so I think, look, if, if you look at the current political situation and you start from the assumption that the U.S. is the world's oldest democracy, something you always hear, right? Um, and that America has been this stable, consolidated democracy for two and a half centuries, then, I mean, it must be entirely baffling. Where on earth is the anti-democratic radicalization of the Republican Party all of a sudden coming from? Why are so many million Americans all of a sudden turning on democracy if you assume that they've always been on board with democracy until quite recently, right? Um, so I suggest we need to just revise those underlying assumptions because I just don't think it's plausible that millions of people were totally on board with liberal democracy and then suddenly started openly embracing Trumpian authoritarianism. That just doesn't seem plausible to me. I think what we should start instead is with an acknowledgement what democracy meant in America before the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. A system that was 
by contemporaneous standards, fairly democratic if you happen to be a white Christian man and something else entirely if you were not, right? And it's really only in the 60s that the country started to become what we today would recognize as a democracy. But that was always a contested, a conflictual process. And as a matter of fact, modern conservatism or the conservative movement emerged in the middle of the 20th century in the 1950s um, very much in opposition to precisely that vision of finally turning the country into a liberal, multiracial, pluralistic democracy. And while most conservatives came to kind of accept a specific, narrowly restricted version of democracy, their acceptance of democracy was always conditional. It always depended on whether or not it would be set up in a way that allowed for the forces of multiracial pluralism to be kept in check, right? So I just think it's not accurate to say conservatives have all of a sudden turned their backs on democracy. Rather than suddenly going from pro-democratic to anti-democratic, they have actually been fairly consistent. They've been on board with a restricted version of democracy, but determined to prevent multiracial pluralistic democracy. And I think if you start seeing it in this context, the current situation is a lot less kind of surprising or baffling. Right. That modern day Republicans are kind of, they were on board with democracy provided it kept who they wanted on top. But yes. this idea of an expanded democracy with everyone's voice and everyone getting involved, they were never on board for that. This isn't some new thing that they've just suddenly become against this. This was always the thing. And they want to go back to, they're sort of single-minded in this goal to transform the current political system, which in their opinion has gone way too far towards true equality, back into something that feels more aligned with their worldview, their power structure. That They don't care if they have to hold on to power without majority support. They just want to keep their version of the country. So there's no point in debating whether Republicans really want to abolish multiculturalism or open-minded democracy, right? Because the proof is there. You point it out all the time. The proof is there at the state level. They can't control the federal level so much. So on the federal level, they act as obstructionists. But the state level, every place that they're in charge, they're openly embracing this idea of an authoritarian version of society, right? They're mobilizing against democracy because it no longer works for them. And it's happening on so many fronts simultaneously that it's hard for us to see how connected it all is, but it's absolutely connected. And we need to look at the big picture, right? This banning of abortion, contraception, criminalizing LGBT people, installing an authoritarian sort of white nationalist education system. It's all part and parcel of sort of taking us back to a time where democracy worked for them. I mean, look, I think I might, I might say this a few times uh, in our, during our conversations. <laughs> I think this is a good moment to tell everyone that they don't have to trust me <laughs> when I say what the conservative vision for America is, what I call sort of 1950s style white Christian patriarchal dominance, but they should really trust conservatives, when they themselves tell us that is their vision, and not just tell us, but actually act on this vision, right? I mean, to me, conservatives could not be clearer about what their goal is. The evidence is in, just like you said, I mean, it's in what Republicans have been pursuing on the state level. We have seen just a wave of red state legislation rolling back uh, basic rights and fundamental liberties intended to eviscerate the civil rights regime um, that has been established since the 60s 
banish, outlaw, censor anything that threatens of white Christian male dominance. Um, I mean, I think it really is happening on so many levels simultaneously that it's kind of easy to lose sight of how things are connected, right? I mean, you, you mentioned all these things that are happening, ban abortion and contraception, criminalize LGBTQ people, install strict guidelines for education that are in line with a sort of white nationalist understanding of the past, censor dissent, restrict voting rights, purge election commissions. These are not disparate actions. The overriding concern behind all of them is to maintain traditional political, social, cultural, and economic hierarchies. It's a political project that it goes well beyond Congress and, and state legislatures. It's, it's about restoring and entrenching traditional authority in the local community, in the public square, in the workplace, in the family, right? Um, I think it's fair to say that in some respects, I always say that, that they're trying to take the country back to the 1950s, right? I think in some areas, the conservative vision is to take it even further back. I mean, in terms of America's political economy, um, the government's regulatory influence, the state's role in regulating the economy and regulating business. I think the goal is to take it further back into the 1930s to the pre-New Deal state. They want to abolish what they call the activist state, right? But I think in terms of the country's political, social, and cultural order, I really believe it is the 1950s or sort of the imagined 1950s, right? The pre-civil rights era of, of sort of stable white Christian patriarchal dominance. That is the goal. And again, if you don't want to believe me or everyone else who says that, just look at what they're doing. Just look at, look at all the legislation they're introducing, the, the laws that they pass. Don't trust me, but I, I would definitely trust them. No, absolutely. You know, the, what, what white conservatives define as real America is essentially this, as you're saying, this white, predominantly patriarchal Christian nation where traditional authority is respected and the white Christian man is on top. And anything else is sort of a bastardization of the real American dream. They're looking to support and preserve this vision of America. And they are pretty consistent in it. And you just have to look at what they're doing in real time. It doesn't take intellectuals or professors to tell us that. We just need to actually look at what's out there. I always say they're trying to get us in a time machine and send us back. And it sounds like you agree with that. Oh, yeah. And you're talking about this... Um, how important it is for us to have this more accurate understanding of American history, you know, one that doesn't idolize the past. And you point out that even these concepts of, you know, the government working together and consensus and stability were actually more often than not the very things that stopped real racial and social progress, right? One of the quotes that you said that wildly resonates with me is, we have to resist the politics of weaponized nostalgia. Can you walk me through that concept? Right. So um, I think it's pretty obvious that the American right, when I say the American right, I mean the Republican Party, but also sort of the conservative intellectual sphere and the conservative movement, all of that together. That's the American right. And the Republican Party is one part of that, right? So the American right, the Republican Party, they want to turn the clock back, right, to, again, 50s, 30s, whatever. Yeah, this golden age of American history. Exactly. Um, and I think it's crucial we recognize that, are be that they are being helped in this sort of reactionary quest by the fact that they can build on and they can weaponize 
a much more widespread nostalgia for a supposedly better time in American history, right? I mean, look, no one outside the Trumpian right wants to run around with a MAGA hat. Like, who, who puts on MAGA hats? Like, that's, that's proper sort of Trumpist base, right? But there is a pervasive a pervasive nostalgia among moderates and centrists and also certain sort of liberals that helps transport those reactionary ideas into the mainstream of American politics, right? And I think you see this in the talk about how, oh, everything is so polarized now, right? And how supposedly so the, the unity period of the, the pre-1970s era was so much better. Or you see it in the, in the, in the idea that, oh, we have cancel culture today and we're in a free speech crisis, whereas Americans lived in a golden age of free speech not that long ago. And so at, at the core of all of these ideas, polarization and free speech crisis and all this, is the idea that it used to be better, that America is on a dangerous path away from a golden era. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, we can, we can talk about in a minute maybe how, how completely ahistorical this idea is of, of the golden age. It's something that it never existed, right? Or only existed for a certain group of people. Yes, I mean, exactly, right. Um, it, it maybe existed for wealthy white men in particular, right? Um, um, yeah, but, well, white Christian men of means. Yeah, exactly. But, but the first step really is to recognize how the right has sort of latched onto this sort of widespread nostalgia, has, success, has, has successfully sort of weaponized it, and I think weaponized nostalgia, so, so taking that sort of widespread feeling of, oh, it used to be better, we kind of want to go back, and, and really sort of using that to push their own agenda and push their talking points into the mainstream, um, that is a potent tool in the hands of reactionaries to kind of make their visions sound a lot more plausible and a lot more legitimate. And I think that that's what we really need to be careful uh, when we kind of you know, accept these concepts of polarization and cancel culture and all that. And we really need to push back against that. Uh, I think it only serves the sort of white nationalistic base to go back to that, that white picket fence time with the perfect family. That was only for one part of the country. Everyone else will tell you that that part never existed. That America, that perfect America, it never existed for anyone other than people who looked like us and had means. So it was never really real. You know, we had this cohesion and cooperation in politics because everyone in power agreed to uphold that current power structure with the white man on top. And now that that power structure has sort of been opened to give other voices and other types of people a voice, we're considered to be uh, polarized. And then that sort of started in the 1960s, like you said, you know, when the Democratic Party started opening their minds to civil rights and saying, yeah, why don't we do this? And why don't we have this? And we should integrate schools. And why don't women have credit cards? And we should have birth control and all these kind of things that gave people uh, more power in their own lives, but also gave more groups of people a voice in the American um, political system. And that just doesn't work for the people who have always been at to on top. And I think there is a whole group of Republicans who see the Democrats that opened the field for people as traitors in a lot of ways. You know, like it was working when we all worked together. When people say, you know, both parties are the same, there was a period of time when yeah. both parties kind of were the same, where yeah. where they were both working for the white power structure and would they sort of, they would make, you know, 
concessions to each other, but with the agreement that they were upholding the white power structure. And then when we started in the 60s opening it up to other people, that was where it really sort of fell apart. And this idea you're saying of polarization, because it's not, in your opinion, that the country has actually become more polarized, but rather that the right has become more radicalized. Like one side opened up the game so more people could play, so more people could join the game. And one side then became more insulated and radicalized because they didn't want these people playing their game. And the more people that joined, the angrier and more isolated that other group has become. Who are these people? Who? Why should I be listening to them? Why should they have power? Why should I listen to their voice? And I think they've kind of been mad about it for about 50 years. So they've built this structure where they can tear it all down and flip the table and start the game again, get back to a place where they're in charge and the rest of the people cannot play. And that includes the liberal betrayers who are now villainized as pedophiles or liars or election stealers, this radical woke left, the communists, the socialists, these people out to destroy the country. Yeah, I mean, you said something there that is, I think, so important and, and is such a, a, a fundamental historical fact that I believe still not enough people really grapple with. There was a time when the two parties were the same, or at least, I mean, maybe not the same, but they agreed, generally agreed on the sort of the, the broader contours of American politics and society up until sort of the 1950s, or in, the, in particular in sort of the 1950s, before the civil rights legislation of the 60s. That is the type of consensus and unity that is often mythologized, right? And that, that you know, so many pundits kind of talk about how we kind of need to go back to that kind of consensus and unity, but it is so important to understand that it was really, yes, it was bipartisan. Yes, it was unity. Yes, it was a type of consensus, but it was a white male elite consensus, not what it was, right? Um, and, and look, I think whenever you hear people talk about, oh, you know, we need more unity and we need to go back to that, I just wish people would grapple with the fact that in U.S. history, consensus and stability have often stifled racial and social progress. The price for extending democracy in U.S. history has always been political instability or division or polarization, whatever you want to call it, because demands for equality and social justice are inherently destabilizing to an order traditionally based on white Christian patriarchal authority, right? American democracy was stable whenever and as long as it didn't interfere with a political, social, and cultural order and got to define what did and what did not count as, you know, quote unquote, real America. And conversely, moments of racial and social progress or even just perceived progress have always been conflictual, have always led to a reactionary counter-mobilization that threatened to abolish democracy rather than accepting multiracial pluralism. I think if we really need to accept that and apply that to our interpretation and assessment of the current situation, right, there is absolutely no need for any kind of unity nostalgia, um, historically speaking, right? There's absolutely no need to mythologize past eras of, sort of white Christian patriarchal rule just because they seemed stable. Um, and they only seemed stable to the ones at the top. I mean, ask anyone who happened to be not a white man 
if the 1950s were <laughs> and stable and golden era, and you would have gotten a very different answer, right? And we really need to remember that and grapple with that. Yeah. And the reality is America has changed since then. It's evolved. It's different than it was. It is less white. It is less conservative. It is less Christian. And even recent political and social events like the BLM protests or trans rights or gay rights have all sort of heightened this sense that conservatives are threatened, that their way of life is under siege. And this has put the conservative viewpoint under a lot of strain because conservatives have essentially remained the same and the world has changed around them. And in a real democracy, when you don't represent the viewpoint of the majority anymore, your hold on power becomes tenuous. They just don't have the numbers anymore to back them up. So now they have this group of powerful people who want to turn the clock back to this mythical time when things were better, right? But really, it was a real time when things were better for them, right? They're convinced that they have to do this. And they have convinced a sizable part of the electorate that the country's coming apart and they're the political movement that will give people back what's lost, right? And this promise of the good old days is appealing to people. It's appealing, um, especially since they've also convinced those same people that they're fighting against this sort of murderous group of monsters who stole an election and spend all the country's money and are looking to burn the whole country down because then they can justify doing anything that they need to to save the country, right? So what if they have to abandon democracy and the rule of law to do it? They have convinced people that the Democrats or the left have abandoned the country and they're just fighting back. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's I think... It's very important to understand how the entire political conflict is really revolving around this issue of democracy right now, right? It is the fundamental reality of American politics that democracy itself has become a partisan issue, right? And for now, the Democratic Party is the country's only major small d Democratic Party, right? Um, I mean, look, what's new is not that democracy is contested. Democracy has always been the contested issue in American history. But what is relatively new is that it's an issue that separates the parties so clearly, right? It was the 1960s civil rights legislation that set in motion this process of partisan realignment, of ideological sorting, ultimately uniting the forces opposing multiracial pluralistic democracy in the Republican Party, in a Republican Party that has been focused almost solely on the interests and sensibilities of white conservatives, at least since the 1970s, when conservative forces became the dominating faction within the Republican Party. And you know, like you, you said it, and that is so important. Republicans are not, they're not, they're reacting to something real. They're not making up. The, the fact that the country has changed, right? The conservative political project, which again is to uphold a certain vision of America as first and foremost a white Christian patriarchal nation, right? And that vision has come under enormous pressure because the country has become less white, it has become less religious, it has become more pluralistic. Um, and, you know, because of political change and cultural change, most importantly, demographic change over the past few decades, right? And nothing symbolized this threat, quote-unquote threat, to uh, um, traditional white elite dominance like the election of Barack Obama. 
And Republicans understand this better than anyone else. And this is really important, I think. In many ways, the right has a much clearer understanding of this political moment than what I get from many people on the left. They understand better than anyone else that in a functioning democracy, they would have to either widen their focus beyond the interests and sensibilities of white conservatives, which they're not willing to do, or they would have to relinquish power, which they absolutely reject, right? So they have chosen a different path. They are determined to transform the political system in a way that would allow them to hold on to power without majority support, even against the explicit desire of a growing uh, numerical majority of the electorate. In other words, they are determined to abolish democracy because, again, to them, it's not democracy is not the goal, right? The goal is to preserve what they define as "quote unquote" real America. What they, uh, the only version of real America they accept, which is again a white Christian patriarchal nation, that's the goal. And if democracy is in the way of preserving that type of America, then democracy has to go, and that's the decision they've made. And then what they've done is they've set up what you call a permission structure to do whatever it needs to be done to get to that result, right? And yeah. in doing so, they've sort of made they've made the Democrats the enemy, which is sort of a fascistic way of looking at the world. Yeah. Well, this is a lot for us to take in. So let's take a little break to do just that. And we'll be right back with Thomas Zimmer after some messages from our sponsors. If you follow this podcast, you know our family is deeply committed to Athletic Greens. The thing about Athletic Greens is that it truly works. My family, my father, my friends were all committed to it. And I have no problem pitching it to you because it really makes you feel better. You don't crash at 4 p.m., you sleep through the night, and you consistently have more energy. At least that has been our experience. With one scoop of Athletic Greens and water on an empty stomach, your body is absorbing 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, whole food superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to start your day off right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, so basically all the things. And it's not only good for your body, it's good for the planet. Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company. In 2020, Athletic Greens purchased carbon credits to support projects that protect old-growth rainforests. And here at home, AG donates millions of meals a year to No Kid Hungry. So reclaim your health and arm your immune system with Athletic Greens. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. Again, that is athleticgreens dot com slash politics girl to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate in daily nutritional insurance. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I can't say enough about therapy. As you might be able to tell from the way I am, I am an overthinker. I worry a lot. I have trouble with insomnia. I have trouble with anxiety. One of the reasons I do this podcast is because it helps me get my thoughts in order and it makes me feel better to know I'm working to make the world a bit better instead of just worrying about it without action until I make myself sick. I don't know what I would do without my therapist to talk through all my feelings, especially with the world being the way it is these days. And if you don't have a therapist, I would highly recommend looking into one. You don't have to deal with anxiety to benefit from an hour to yourself once a week. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with your therapist. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. The world has become hard, 
incredibly sad and troubling. And sometimes we just need someone to talk to about it. So give BetterHelp a try and see why over 2 million people have used it for online therapy. Right now, Politics Girl listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash politicsgirl. That's betterhelp.com slash politicsgirl. You will never regret prioritizing yourself. The Politics Girl podcast is sponsored by Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a digital marketing platform that helps small businesses and nonprofits of all sizes build, grow, and succeed. With email marketing, contact management, social media ads, and more, Constant Contact helps small businesses and not-for-profits connect with their customers and find new ones and sell online, all from one easy-to-use platform. Trusted by millions of businesses to help improve their marketing with a 97% deliverability rate, you will know that your customers and potential customers will be getting the right message at the right time every time. Constant Contact's easy-to-use platform makes contact management easier than ever, and their growth tools will help you find a bigger audience fast. To learn more or start your free trial, go to constantcontact.com. That's constantcontact.com. So when I talk about the state of American democracy and the anti-democratic radicalization of the right and the Republican Party, one reaction I often get is, oh, come on, they, they won't go that far, right? <laughs> I think that's really, that really, that- Yes, yeah. they will, yeah, Thomas. I mean, yes, they will. I mean, they, they are will. going that far, <laughs> right? Um, but I think this reaction really underestimates how people on the right have been rationalizing and legitimizing their actions. And I really think we need to pay closer attention to how they are giving themselves permission to embrace radical measures and extremists in their midst, right? If you listen to the right, you'll quickly realize that they are constantly playing up this idea that the country is facing an onslaught from a radically, quote unquote, un-American extremist left that is violently threatening to destroy everything uh, the nation is supposed to stand for. And that the Democratic Party has been taken over by those, quote unquote, un-American forces. I mean, just one example, whenever I bring up that the right is embracing militant violence. Conservatives reply, oh, don't you know that the left has burned Portland down to ashes? And I'm like, I don't think that happened. But that's that's what you get, right? Or, of course, the idea that the Democratic Party is the party of pedophiles and groomers, which has become the mainstream talking point on the right, right? Once you have convinced yourself you are fighting a noble war against a bunch of pedophiles seeking to destroy real America... There are no more lines you are not justified to cross or take the mainstreaming of great replacement theory. I know I, know, I think you've, you've talked about this um, on, on your show. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Once you have convinced yourself and your supporters that the other side is scheming to kill and replace you, any measure you take, regardless of how radical, is justified as an in- inevitable act of sort of preemptive self-defense, Right. And that is how they're giving themselves permission to embrace whatever radical measures are deemed necessary to to defeat this quote-unquote un-American enemy. I mean, look, if the nation is under acute threat, nothing is beyond the pale to defend it, right? Democracy, rule of law, who cares, right? I think this permission structure is absolutely crucial. Conservatives do not see themselves as the aggressors or certainly don't ever want to admit that they are the ones being aggressive. (laughs) They're building up this supposedly totalitarian threat from the left 
And that allows them to justify their actions within that sort of long established framework of conservative self-victimization. Conservatives have always talked about we're the victims here and liberals are everywhere and they are dominating everything. And, you know, this is why I think clinging to this idea that, oh, they won't go that far is it's dangerous. They absolutely will because they have convinced themselves that the other side has already gone much further and will stop at nothing. And so they will also stop at nothing. Yeah. If you've already convinced your followers that the Democrats stole the last election, why would it be bad for you to steal an election, right? If you've already convinced your followers that they burned Portland to the ground, despite the fact that Portland is standing and perfectly happy selling s'mores, um, they they can't do it, right? It's it. You can justify all of it. You put up a tweet recently um, from Benjamin Weigarten who said uh, they want a president jailed. They want a Supreme Court justice impeached. They want members of Congress disqualified from running. They want lawyers who represented the president in the election ruined and shunned by their communities. Don't you see what's going on, right? They have set up this thing like we're doing something crazy, but we want somebody jailed if they have committed major crimes. You want a Supreme Court justice impeached if he's corrupted and involved in a coup, right? You want members of Congress disqualified from running if they helped a coup. You want the lawyers who represent election fraud, who knew there was no election fraud, disbarred because that's what should happen. But they set it up as if this is crazy behavior from the left, whereas it's really just consequences for your actions, right? Yeah, I mean, look, there, there's a healthy element of projection with with most things uh, that are coming from the right, right? Um, but but also, I mean, this this um, this particular example that you brought up is interesting because the tactic there, the strategy there, is to take things completely out of context, present them in a vacuum. Oh, they want a president jailed. Which look in a vacuum, that sounds outrageous, right? I mean. Again, obviously, if you describe the actual context, the actual president that the left liberals, the Democratic Party, wants to face some consequences, it's not outrageous. It's a defense of democracy and the rule of law. But by presenting it completely out of context in a vacuum, it makes it sound like it's the other side, the left, the liberals, the Democrats that are uh, engaged in this radical assault on the political system. And so, again, if that were true, I mean, of course you have to defend the political system, right, by whatever means necessary. And and this is what is constantly coming from the right, right? This This idea that Oh, they are already doing it. So, like, we need to res- we need to respond here, right? Um, and 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 so again, that gives them permission to embrace radicalism and embrace extremists, and and that's what they're doing. And it's this concept that they're not the aggressors here; they're just defending, de- you know, defending America. It's the radical woke left that's gone too far. And I don't think it even matters if they believe it or not. It's more important to give themselves a permission structure to move the world to their overall worldview, you know, which again goes back to white Christian patriarchy is good and American and multiracial pluralistic democracy where all voices and people have a place is bad and un-American, right? And it's 
not going to stop. Like what, they're not going to suddenly just have some come to Jesus moment. They're too far gone. They know they don't have the numbers to win power fair and square. So they've decided to suppress the wrong kind of people from voting. And if that doesn't work, they're going to overturn the votes of the wrong kind of people. And if that doesn't work, they're going to scare and intimidate people away from voting or take our rights away piece by piece until we're all so demoralized that we give up on democracy altogether. You said once that democracy depends on people feeling safe in the public square, that if we don't, because of intimidation or threats of violence, that we're not fully able to participate as citizens. And that's what the extremists want, right? They want to abolish democracy, and whether that's through violence or coercion or harassment or suppression, and they want people to give up on it, because if people give up on it, then they win. Look, I know it sounds cliche at this point, right, to say it, but it's nevertheless true. Democracy is not a spectator sport. I mean, it really relies on people getting actively involved in multiple ways. Um, You can't do or you can't defend or you can't uphold democracy from home, certainly not while you're feeling like you need to hide inside your house. The most obvious form in which people need to actively sort of go out and participate in democracy is voting, right? Um, but also they need to be able to make their voices heard and, and prote- protest and, and congregate and, and whatever. Um, so, so democracy really depends on people feeling safe enough to go out into the public square, right? Um, and if they don't, because again, it is ruled by intimidation and threats of violence, then they won't be able to participate as citizens. Look, we've seen over the past few years the spread and proliferation and rapid normalization of right-wing militancy, of of fascistic violence. We have these, it it comes in different forms. It comes in organized forms in the forms of like these militant groups like the Oath Keepers or the uh, the Proud Boys and that kind of stuff. It also comes in sort of less organized forms, right? There's the omnipresence of guns and tactical gear in American public life, by the way. That's one of those things where you come from a different country and you could like... I know. It's just astonishing, right? I mean, you go through not Washington DC necessarily, but some parts, many parts of America, you just walk through the streets and there's some dude in tactical gear. And you're like, what is going on? Where are you going? Like, are you going to war? Um, you know, and... and no, he's going to Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> exactly. He's just getting coffee. Um <laughs> Um, (laughs) You also see it in the way these symbols of white fascistic militancy are now everywhere. Like there's the Finn Blue Line flag, there's the Spartan helmet, there's the Punisher skull. I mean, once you start paying attention, right, you'll see those a lot as as stickers on cars or whatever. None of that is new, right? There's a long tradition of these white power movements, white militia movements. And of course, right, there's always been white supremacist violence in American history. Um, um, But what feels new to me is the speed with which all of this has moved towards the center of conservative politics has been normalized within the Republican Party. I mean, look, up until recently, whoever openly propagated and explicitly embraced far-right ideology, such as the so-called Great Replacement Theory, at least on the national stage, had to expect some form of pushback and even like actual consequences. Remember Steve King, right? A a Republican representative that was in March, 2017, I think, when he faced actual consequences for embracing this kind of far-right ideology. 
that has rapidly changed, right? We saw this in the aftermath of the, the, the terrorist attack in Buffalo, the mainstreaming of great replacement theory on the right, it's open embrace by the right-wing media machine as well as by Republican officials. I mean, look, um, that's where I think this cannot remain without effect on the public square, on how people feel when they are in the public square. The, the fact that all this is now part of the public square in America, and that is what these extremists want. They, they want to abolish democracy through violence, coercion, harassment, and we really need to address the spread of vigilante violence and, and white supremacist terrorism, this culture of violent threat that is it's, it's jeopardizing the very foundations of democracy, um, and it's, it's acutely dangerous. I know. It really is. I was at the grocery store the other day and it was the very first time truly that I thought, okay, if a shooter comes in here, which which way should I run? You know? And I thought, oh my God. And then I thought, oh, my, I've put all these canned goods on top of my purse. I can't take my purse. It'll, it'll be too hard. I'll have to leave without my purse. So I took my phone out and put it in my pocket so I could at least run with my phone towards the back if there was a shooter. And I thought, is this freedom? Like, this is what we call freedom. This is insane. And sending your child to school shouldn't be terrifying that they're not going to show up at home again, or that they're going to be so blown apart that you have to identify them using DNA. This is the most bizarre concept, as you said, as a foreigner of freedom and this growing normalization of people packing weapons no matter where they go, of voter intimidation. You've got people like Ron DeSantis down in Florida creating a voter protection group that's going to go from polling place to polling place. That's total 1930s brown shirt behavior. It is crazy um, to create your own little military force to follow people around and make sure they're doing what you think is should be done. And I know you kind of think that this is going to get worse before it gets better, right? You've been pretty clear that these far-right views aren't going to just change their mind. You know, they have their enough true believers now fully committed to this idea of returning to the way it was and, and the way it was worked for them. So we either stop them or they succeed in what is essentially making us into some sort of authoritarian white Christian nation. Are we a lost cause? You mean the country, America? Yes. I mean, America, I mean, I personally don't think so, but I strongly believe that only by accepting reality for what it is and facing a threat head on can we really stop what's happening, you know? And people just don't want to believe it. You said it before, you know, they're like, oh, they won't go so far. But look at Roe versus Wade, right? People said, well, that, they'll never overturn it. I mean, it's established law. They're going to overturn it. Wait, just two seconds from now, this month, it's going to be gone. And that will not be the first thing that's taken away. It's going to be a domino effect. And this idea that we can put our heads in the sand and be like, it won't be that bad. It's not really going to happen. You know, the fact that people still aren't getting that they have to vote in every single election for every single person um, down ballot, that we're really in danger. It concerns me. Let me say something about this this question because it's I think it's so important. Is is America lost, right? Because I, I get this so much, right? I, I get I get people who who I don't know on Twitter or, or even sending me emails saying, "Yeah, you're so right, and that's why I'm giving up. I'm moving to Canada or whatever. Um, I'm getting out." Right, right, yeah. America's lost. I I do not. That's not my position. My position is that the defense of democracy has to start from a realistic 
an unflinching assessment of where we are. But it's not a lost cause. Democracy is an acute peril, yes. But my interpretation of what is going on is in many ways a glass half full kind of perspective. Because what I'm saying, and I think you probably agree with this, um, um, what I'm saying is that reactionary forces are radicalizing because they feel under siege. They feel their backs against the wall and they are reacting to something real. They are reacting to the fact that America has indeed, due to political, social, cultural, and most importantly, demographic developments, become less white, less conservative, more pluralistic, more liberal. The country has never been closer to actually becoming a truly multiracial pluralistic democracy. So we have an enormous- I know, we're so close. Yeah, I mean, that's (laughs) the thing, right? We have an enormous chance here, but we also need to acknowledge that as of right now, it is an open question whether or not a stable, truly multiracial pluralistic democracy can be achieved. And I wanna make this very clear, That is a question of world historic significance because such a truly multiracial pluralistic democracy has just never been achieved anywhere. It would be a world historic first. There are and there have been several stable democracies, of course, but no matter where you look, even these stable democracies were sort of culturally and ethnically homogeneous to begin with. You can think maybe Scandinavia, right? Or there was always a pretty clearly defined ruling group or ruling caste or heron folk or whatever you want to call it, like in the US, right? But a multiracial pluralistic democracy in which an individual's status was not determined largely by race, gender, religion, sexual orientation. I don't think that's ever been achieved anywhere. And in this perspective, the US becomes the crucial test case for whether or not it is actually possible to establish such a democracy. And it's an open question. It's one of enormous significance for all of us, for all democracies around the world, really, which is why everyone is everyone is paying attention so closely to what is happening in the United States. And it's also why the stakes right now are enormously high. And that, more than anything else, I, we really need everyone to understand. Yeah. And we can't be lulled into some false sense of security that these people on the far right are too ridiculous or too extreme and... You said, you know, you just have to look at history. There's a lot of successful authoritarians who were once considered, you know, buffoons, but ultimately they end up buffoons with all the power and we can't allow that to happen. I mean, look, this is whenever you talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert or all these people, right? I'm, I do believe that, yes, they are ridiculous. Yes, they are clowns in many ways, Right. Um, but I do believe that too many people allow themselves to feel, to be lulled into it like a false sense of security because of the clownishness, because of the ridiculousness. But look, I, I, you know, you don't always want to do this as a historian. Oh, let me tell you in history. But, you know, this is one where, let me tell you in history, right? Some of history's most successful authoritarians, and look, I'm saying this, I'm a German historian, right? some of history's most successful authoritarians were considered goons and buffoons by their contemporaries until they became goons and buffoons in power, right? Every Western society has always harbored far-right extremists like Marjorie Taylor Greene. 
But the fact that the Republican Party embraces them and elevates these people to positions of political influence and power, that really does constitute an acute danger to democracy, regardless of how ridiculous or clownish or whatever we might think they are. So if you had to leave Americans with one thought moving forward um, about what we should do next, we've got the midterms coming up in November, we have the next presidential election in 24, really the midterms are the most important because they can sort of solidify how 24 goes. Um, what, what would you tell Americans who want to go towards that idea of not the golden era of America that is really a false era, but the real golden age of America, which could be the golden age for all multicultural, pluralistic democracies moving forward? Um, what advice would you give us? What would you tell us? So I want to be clear, I'm not an activist in the sense that I'm not, I don't have these answers, right? And don't want to pretend I do. But what I think is really important is, one, embrace the messiness of this situation, right? I think too many people look at, you know, the, the current situation in which the old order, that 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 traditional order of, sort of white uh, Christian patriarchal dominance has, is kind of crumbling and a new order is trying to break through, one of truly multiracial, pluralistic democracy. And that can be a messy situation, right? Because there, there are all of a sudden so many more people, so many more groups, part of the discussion, being able to make their voices heard and their claims heard. And that can feel, and I, I really, I, I understand that. I think to many people, this feels kind of messy and, and complicated and, you know, but embrace it because the, the, the alternative really is to entrench traditional white male authority. And, and, and what we're trying to figure out now, again, even though it's kind of messy sometimes, what we're trying to figure out now is this, this other, this vision of truly multiracial pluralistic democracy. And I think it's, it's a vision worth fighting for. And the other thing is, look, to me, it seems very clear that as of right now, Everyone who prefers to live in a small d democratic society and not in a authoritarian minority regime uh, system, for the time being, we have to be single issue voters and that single issue has to be democracy. That is, again, if anyone follows me on Twitter, if anyone reads the stuff I'm writing, you'll know that. I have a lot to criticize about the, the Democratic Party and the, and the Democratic establishment. But look, the fundamental reality in American politics is that as of right now, there's only one small d Democratic Party, and it's the Democratic Party. So for now, we should be single issue voters and make democracy that single issue that sort of decides our electoral choices. That is where I am, where I stand. Um, and that is sort of what I what I think people re need to really grapple with, honestly. Yeah, Thomas, that's where I stand, too. Uh, single issue voters for democracy and as critical as I am of the Democrats myself, they are the one party standing between us and authoritarianism. So we can uh, force them to do different things once we've sort of saved or staved off uh, authoritarianism. But right now, as you said, we have to embrace the mess and move forward as if democracy depends on it because it actually does. Now, I could talk to you all day. 
um, <laughs> because I like your brain and I like the way it works, but I think that's probably a good amount for people to take in. And I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's so essential that we understand what we're up against because the stakes couldn't be higher. And the country and democracy itself is really in danger. And following people like you who really sort of get it and conceptualize it and are able to write it so clearly is so important. So if people want to follow your work and get your insights moving forward, and I hope that they do um, because you're truly brilliant, how can they follow you or hear more? First of all, you, you're being way too kind. Um, I, I told you this in the beginning. You're, oh. making, you're making me blush on camera. That is, okay, um, I, I really appreciate it. So um, I think, look, the best way to follow me is, is probably on Twitter. I am at tzimmer underscore history on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter, much more than I should be, but, um, you know, telling myself that it's hopefully worth it. Um, so I'm, you know, that's where you get my immediate reactions to everything that's happening, but also I'm, I'm linking to everything I'm, I'm writing and, and working on. So that's probably the best way. Well, it's not too much. I'm telling you, I read all of your stuff and I'm absolutely fascinated all the time. And I know you're always in the Guardian too, so we can read that and we'll wait for your books. That'll be great. We'll have you back on when you've got your books out there. But thank you so much for joining us today, Thomas. We really appreciate it. And we will move forward um, because the alternative to what we've got is horrifying and the vision of a real pluralistic multicultural democracy where all of our voices matter is worth fighting for. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. So that was Thomas Zimmer, author, professor, and brilliant mind, talking about how we have to fight this crazy gaslighting that the Republicans are selling to allow them to take this country back to a time where the white Christian patriarchy controlled all the levers of power, and the gaslighting we tell ourselves that it won't ever get that bad or go that far. That American democracy is both in grave danger and at a moment of great opportunity. That if we take it seriously enough, we could not only save what we have, but move towards the type of democracy the world has only ever dreamed of. But to do that, we have to be single issue voters with that issue being democracy itself. The rest we can fix later. I'd like to thank Thomas Zimmer for joining me today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go out and make the world a better place. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.